would open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 24, please. We're going to be back in the Olivet Discourse, this extended answer that Jesus gives to a very, very particular question. Uh, the disciples have seen what Jesus does. They understand that he is the Messiah, the anointed one, uh, this promised one who will come to rule and to reign. Uh, they understand that they've heard him talk about a kingdom, his kingdom. They've heard him talk about how you enter into that kingdom. They've also seen him be uh, violently opposed by the religious leaders. Uh, they've seen him and heard him condemn Jerusalem itself for their failure to respond and believe. Uh, they've heard him say that the temple is coming down. And in trying to put all of that together, they ask a very pointed question. Tell us then, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? When is this going to happen? And what are the signs that are going to tell us that it is happening? And if you were to look at verses 4 through 31 in Matthew chapter 24 there, what you would see is that Jesus' answer so far has dealt primarily with the signs. Answering that part of the question, what are the signs of your coming? Some of them have been very general. Wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines in various places, persecution that's to come. And all of those things, he said, are like the beginnings of birth pains. They're not useless, they're not meaningless, but they only point forward to a time. But then starting in verse 15 and following that, the signs get very, very specific. It says there's going to be an abomination of desolation, the one that Daniel wrote about. He says there's going to be a time of testing and trial, a tribulation that is absolutely different, unique from anything the world has ever seen. He said there's going to be false Christs and false prophets. We saw that last week. People who do remarkable, unexplainable things from the perspective of human power. There's going to be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars. The powers of the heavens themselves are going to be shaken. And then this final culminating sign, the sign of the Son of Man, and the, the understanding throughout all of that is that when Jesus comes again, it will be absolutely clear. It will be unmistakable. He came once in humility. He is going to come again in power and glory. He came once in relative obscurity. When he comes again, every tribe, every tongue, every nation is going to know. The world is going to know. And when he comes again, it is going to be in glory. It is going to be in justice. He's going to execute judgment on those who rebelled against him, and he's going to gather in his elect. And from this point now, Jesus is going to shift slightly, and he's going to move from talking about the signs to talking about the when. And if you remember at the end of last week, I told you that the point for the next 50 or so verses is going to be to be ready. The when is not specific. The reason behind not knowing is to be ready. But today, Jesus is going to talk about the time of his coming. So if you're not there already, find your way to Matthew 24. I'm going to read verses 32 through 35. The goal is to get all the way through verse 39 today. We'll see. But Matthew 24, starting in verse 32, this is what God's word says. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Let's pray. Lord, once again, we come before your word and we ask that you would open our eyes. Our consistent habit is to bring blindness to your word. Our flesh does not comprehend spiritual truth on its own. So, Lord, we need your help. 
to open our eyes so that we can behold the wonderful things that you've written here for us. We need your help. We need your spirit to help us apply these things, not only to know, uh, but then to do something about these things. And Lord, I pray that as we understand more about you, more about your coming, that we would be a people that are characterized by urgency, not panic, but anticipation, expectation, urgency in our lives to please the king, to seek the king while he may be found, and to tell others about his coming. So, Lord, we need your help to do all of these things, and we ask in Christ's name, amen. Now, I don't know about you, but if you're like me, and I have a feeling that most of you are, we struggle with not knowing things. Uh, It seems like the hardest part of any trial is the unknown phase. Um, Back in 2020, when Brandy was diagnosed with breast cancer, the hardest days were those ones where you're waiting, where you've had the tests, and now it's just that wait-and-see period. Even now, as she goes through the various medications that treat the things that come after, the hardest part is not knowing how they're going to impact her because somehow in our minds and in our experience, when we can name something, when we can label something, when we can quantify something, then we can plan for it. We can make a plan, we can have the steps, we can fit these things to what we need to do, and even if it's hard, at least there's a roadmap for how to get through it, but not knowing is incredibly difficult. The disciples very much want to know what the signs are and when Jesus is coming again, and we do too. And it can be a very difficult thing to live with this intense longing to know something and at the same time balance that with a life of faith that is not only okay, but that thrives in the period of not knowing. Well, today we're going to begin to work through how Jesus answers the when. And really what we're going to see is two different pictures that he gives. And the first one that we're going to see is this picture of clarity. Jesus is going to give them a parable, a picture that is designed to show that something is happening, that something is clearly happening. And it begins in verse 32 with that picture. It's a parable from the fig tree, learn its lesson. Remember, a parable is a a physical, tangible, well-known item that is used to illustrate spiritual truth. And if you were with us when we walked through Matthew chapter 13, you remember that parables kind of had a dual purpose. To those that are disciples, to those that Jesus says, to whom it has been given, parables reveal spiritual truth. They take difficult concepts and they make it plain and understandable. But for those who do not call themselves disciples. For those to whom it is not given, parables obscure truth. But who is Jesus talking to? In this context, we know that he's talking to his disciples. He's not trying to give them a mystery. He's actually trying to reveal something. He's answering a specific question, and this is meant to be understood. And so the picture itself is very straightforward. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. Fig trees are common. They would have been very, very familiar with them, but whether it's a fig tree or any other kind of fruit-bearing tree that has this regular lifestyle, the point is the same. They produce things in their proper season. They produce things at a predictable time. If you were to hit your head and go into a coma in Jerusalem and wake up and see a fig tree in bloom, even if you hadn't had any idea what day it was, how long you were asleep, or what month of the calendar it was, you would be able to tell generally what season you were in. The fact that the fig tree was doing something specific means that you were in a particular time of year. Trees in the winter, branches grow brittle, fruit leaves aren't produced, 
during the summer when things begin to come back, the sap throws through, flows through the trees and they become more supple and bendable. The leaves come out, the fruit begins to produce. You can gauge the time of year just by the clear sign of what's happening. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's beginning to answer that question, not just what the signs will be, but when the end will come. And the most broad answer to the when is that when you see these things, you know the time is near. That all of these signs that I've given indicate a readiness or a closeness of the kingdom. That's why it says in verse 33, so also when you see all these things, know that he is near at the very gates. What are all of these things? Well, that's why the context is so very important. From verse 4 onward, he's talked about signs. He's talked about some of them that mean that the birth pains have started. And then he talks about some of them that mean that he's right at the gate immediately after the tribulation of those days. So you go back and you put these things together and you can understand that when you see certain things happening, you understand that the time is near. This is not an answer to, this is the specific year that it's going to happen. This is the time that it's going to happen. But he is saying that when these things happen, you know that his coming is near. The abomination of desolation, this great tribulation unlike any other time. False Christs and prophets that perform signs and wonders, signs in the heavens, the sign of the Son of Man. When you see these unmistakable things happening, then equally unmistakable is the fact that his coming is right there, right at the door. He is coming. Once again, context tells us who the He is. It's the Son of Man. So these specific signs don't mean that a kingdom is at some far-off point. These specific time, signs tell you that you are in the season of His return. And as we come to verse 34, uh, Jesus gives another kind of indication as to when these things will come by applying it to a certain people certain people. He says in verse 34, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And that single verse right there is one of the most debated parts, not only in Matthew's gospel, but maybe even in all the New Testament. There are a number of different views there held by good and godly people. Um, I'm going to go over four of them fairly briefly here. And here's the reality. I know for a fact that there are members of this congregation who hold to all four of these views. And the fact that we have lived and worked together, that we have done gospel ministry together over the last many years, that no one has burst into flames, ought to be an indication that we can have disagreements and discussions on these type of secondary things and still work together. Uh, we can have fruitful, kind, uh, even disagreements that charitably assume the best about people in a way that the world has completely lost its mind and forgotten how to do. We can talk about these things in love. So when I go over these next four views, first of all, I'm going to do it quickly because I don't want this to turn into a theology lecture that loses the text. That would rob us of something. But I also can't pretend that there's no other views because that doesn't help us. And I really do want to be fair to the views that I'm covering. So with limited time, when I go over your view and I don't hold to that view, you are going to understand that I have robbed the people of a proper understanding. Know that that was not my intention. I want to be brief. I want to be clear. So here's the four broad views, and there are hundred variations of all of these. View number one is that when Jesus says this generation, he means the disciples and the generation that they represent. This is probably the most widely held view, at least among commentators. 
that Jesus is talking to his disciples at a particular place, at a particular point, in a particular time. And so that when he says this generation, he most naturally, they would assume, means the generation that he's talking to at that moment. Those who hold to this view generally understand that the, these things that Jesus is talking about took place in and around A.D. 70 with the fall of Jerusalem. The abomination of desolation, the terrible time of suffering, is all related to the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. There, there are kind of variations on whether the coming of Christ is something that is still future. So it's all these things other than the immediate coming of the Son of Man, or that the Son of Man came in power and in judgment at that time. But broadly, this view says that this generation that will not pass away is that generation of the disciples. To me, context does not support this view because all of these things should probably mean all of these things there. And the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70 was a terrible time. It was suffering on a tremendous scale that we have a hard time getting our minds around. It was an affront to the people. It was a disbanding of the nation in many ways. But it's difficult to see the connection with false Christs performing great signs and wonders. It's difficult to see that as being a time of trouble unlike any other in human history that is filled with times of trouble. It's difficult to see signs in the sun, moon, and the stars. Most difficult is the idea that Christ somehow came then and that there was a gathering of his elect. Uh, those things simply don't seem to flow from that historical context. Okay, so that's view number one. View number two, this generation doesn't refer to a specific generation as far as time, but to a specific people, specifically Israel. So that Jesus is saying that Israel will not perish as a people until all of these things take place. Now, uh, Jesus has indeed referred to Israel as a fig tree. Not only that, there's uh, references in the prophets to Israel as a fig tree, so it seemed to be a consistent metaphor there. Uh, however, the disciples weren't especially concerned about the preservation of the Jewish people, although, by the way, I agree that they won't pass away. I simply don't think that this is what this is communicating. Uh, the disciples asked when and what were the signs. They actually assumed already that the nation would persevere. That was built into their understanding. Jesus has already said that they'll rule over the 12 tribes of Israel. And when we interpret parables, we have to be careful not to assume that a symbol in one parable is universal throughout all the parables. If you remember back in Matthew 13, there were two parables that mentioned a seed. In one of them, it was the word. In another one, it was the kingdom itself. Jesus has used leaven in Matthew's gospel to refer both to sin and to the kingdom of God. If we were to read in Luke's gospel, in the parallel account, in Luke chapter 21, verse 29, as Jesus is giving this, he says, look to the fig tree and all the trees. So Jesus, in his own words, makes it more broad than simply a fig tree. Uh, so I think the understanding is not that this relates to a particular people, but that this general idea that when a tree is in bloom, it means a season is at hand. Uh, the parallels the, is that when these things are happening, the time is at hand. That's view number two. View number three is very closely related to that, but it's a little bit more specific. It's not just uh, the Jewish people, but it's specifically that generation that saw Israel regathered to, the land, to their land uh, when they became a state in 1948. 
Uh, that view is especially popular during the last half of the 20th century among many conservative uh, scholars and pastors, uh, lots of people that I agree with broadly on eschatology. Um, the problem, once again, with that is that I think it demands that the fig tree mean Israel when that's not specific in the context. More than that, there's nothing in the context about the gathering of Israel as a political state. The only gathering in the context is the gathering of the elect, which even those who hold this view would say has not happened. There's a problem of the idea of a generation and how long is a generation. Uh, people pull from various parts of the Bible and it's uh, 20 years, some say 30 years, some say 40 years like the wilderness generation, uh, some say 70 or by measure of strength 80 like we find in Psalm 90 to identify a lifespan. So uh, there's some fuzziness there that isn't present in the response of the disciples that this is supposed to be clear. And so that leads us to the last view, and this is the view that I hold, and that's to say that this generation that will not pass away is the generation that sees these events come to pass. The generation that sees these things is going to see the consummation of the birth pains. The generation that sees the abomination of desolation, the generation that sees the false Christ demonstrate uh, their power, the generation uh, that sees the sign of the coming of man, the sign and the sun and the moon and the stars, that generation will not pass away. I think that fits with the context very, very well. First of all, because it already carries through a common theme. This time of trouble and tribulation is going to be terrible in a way that we can't even get our minds around. So much so that Jesus said, if those days were not shortened, do you remember this? That no human being would be saved. Things are going to be so bad that there's the threat that life on earth actually gets wiped out. But Jesus says that for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. This is another reminder that there will be a generation that survives that. More than that, this time of trouble is really, really severe, but it's also very, very specific. Daniel and Revelation not only talk about it being a particular period of time, they actually give it a length. Daniel with his week, his seven years. And then he talks about half of that being a time of particular trouble. Revelation uses the exact same time frame in months, in days, and in years, to reiterate that this is a time period that is terrible, but that it is fixed and brief. In other words, the generation that sees these things will very much see the end because this time is known and measured. It's a relatively short period of time. So my understanding is that Jesus is carrying on with the answer to when he will return. When are you going to return? Well, look at the fig tree. When you see these things, you know this to be true. I will return. When you see these things, you know that my coming is close. So much so that the generation that sees these things will not pass away. It is not a far-off kingdom that might come one day. When you see these things, understand that the time is near and that generation will not pass away. I think that makes the most sense of things like in those days and immediately. And if I have completely offended you, then let's talk. That's okay. We can have those discussions. But really, from that point, Jesus moves on to something that is not only unmistakable, that should actually sound relatively familiar to us, and that is that what he's talking about, there is a permanence to what he's saying. Look at verse 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. What has he just been talking about? Basically, the undoing and remaking of creation. Signs in the sun and the moon and the stars, earthquakes on the earth. Again, you read through Revelation and it's these cataclysmic events. The disciples say, look at the temple and how glorious this is. And Jesus says, that's coming down. And by the way, if you think that coming down is a big deal, imagine the scope of all creation shaken 
before the coming of the Son of Man. But what's not subject to change? What does not pass away? He says, my words will not pass away. And we've heard that before, at least very similar language. Way back a long time ago, when we went through the Sermon on the Mount, back in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said that he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. He didn't come to ignore or to replace what God had spoken. He came to fulfill it. And he says, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. It's this picture of God's word that is permanent, that is enduring. And why does that matter to the disciples? Why does that matter to us? Because in a world where everything is up for grabs, in a world where everything is shakable, everything is changeable, then knowing what is unchanging matters. To know that the king's word stands matters. To know that when he says he is coming again for his people matters. To know that no matter how the world rages, no matter how much suffering his people have to endure, no matter how much Satan himself schemes and plots and plans, that the king's word is fixed matters to these people. And the fact that Jesus can say that his words will not pass away is actually another really beautiful, really subtle reminder of exactly who it is who is speaking. Psalm 119, verse 89 says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. See, Jesus isn't just talking with human confidence here. He's not just making political promises like some earthly king. We've seen those, haven't we? Politicians promise and politicians lie. In fact, I was spending time with my boys earlier this week, and as we were driving back home, one of them said to me after another political ad, because it is primary season on the radio, he said, Dad, why do politicians always promise to do those things? You know what? If I was running for office, I wouldn't promise to do anything. That way I wouldn't lie. (laughs) And they go and they make promise after promise with no intention or ability to keep them, not this king. Not this Christ. Not only does he have the will to accomplish everything that he said, but he has the power to accomplish everything that he said, and not one of his words will pass away. And one of the most difficult things about a passage like this is actually breaking it down. Uh, Jesus gives this teaching in a single setting, in a single context. We spend a few weeks going through it, (laughs) maybe more than a few weeks. But that means we have to put in breaks that are really hard to get sometimes. Because I'm acknowledging this because what starts in verse 32 really is going to carry on for a long time, but we don't have the time to go through all of it. So we have to kind of break these things down. So we're going to go through the next picture. But understand that as we pick up next week and the week after, that we're really carrying through in this same context. We're working through the same question. But starting now in verse 36, Jesus is going to continue talking about the time, but he's going to give another picture. And this one's not a picture of clarity. This one's a picture of callousness, a picture of hardness. And the first thing we see in verse 36 is a statement about the end that might pose a potential problem for us. Because right here he's going to talk about what he knows as the son. Look at verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. What day is he talking about? That day. He's talking about the final day, that final period of time. 
That time that includes those specific signs and the coming of the Son. Verse 32, he says, when you see these things, you know that he is right there, right at the gate. Verse 34, this generation will not pass away. The disciples ask, when will these things be? And the answer is, the signs will be clear when it is happening, but as to the specific details, no one knows. First of all, not the angels in heaven. Now, that's a pretty big deal. Because although we forget, angels are not the chubby little chunky kids that populate our cheesy Valentine's Day cards. Angels are powerful, fearsome, majestic creations. They are ministering spirits that do the will of God. Angels live in the very presence of God, worshiping Him. Angels are able to do things that men cannot Angels mediated the giving of the law according to several places in the New Testament. Angels, we've already heard in this context, are going to play a key part in this as they go out and gather his elect. So you would think that these powerful, majestic spiritual beings that live in the very presence of God and play a part in these end time activities, certainly they know when it's going to happen. And Jesus says, no, they don't. And if that's hard for us, then really it's nothing compares to what he says next because it's nor the Son but the Father only. And here's the question that we begin to wrestle with is that if Jesus is God like we say He is, how could He not know? And you have to understand that there are many people who come to this and say that not only did Jesus not know, but that Jesus got it wrong. That when Jesus said this generation would would not pass away, that He fully expected to return in the lifetime of those disciples. And so Jesus was wishful thinking and speaking to the best of His knowledge, but that Jesus didn't just not know, He was mistaken. And we have to understand that we can throw that out absolutely. There's a difference between not knowing and giving false information. The check engine light is currently on in my car, as it has been for the better part of two years. Now, I can tell you that I don't know why the check engine light is on. That is admitting that I don't know something. Or I can stand up here and tell you that I would get the check engine light fixed, but I just need more battery fluid for the flux capacitor or something like that. One of those is an honest assessment of what I don't know. The other one is pretending to know something that I don't. I don't. I have no idea why it's on. We've tried. It goes on and off. It's neither here nor there. The idea is that Jesus is not speaking about something that he doesn't know. He is saying that there is a limitation on what he knows. Now, that might not make it any easier on us until we understand that as Christ comes in the incarnation, in his humanity, he willingly and submissively lays aside this use of all of his divine attributes. And there's a lot of ways that people attempt to explain that. I think the best way of saying it is that he humbled himself. That's what Philippians chapter 2 talks about. Paul says that he took on the form of a servant, being found in the likeness of a man. He was made like us. Luke's gospel tells us that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. How do we get through our tiny human minds that the God who spoke creation into existence had to be taught how to walk on dust that he formed. I can't fully reconcile that in my mind. But we do know that Hebrews says that he was made like us so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. We do know that his humility and even his humiliation led to our salvation And here's the point. If the Son, 
who was and is God, very God, was content to submit to the will of the Father and walk in obedience, even though he did not know the day or the hour, do his disciples need to obsess over the particular time? If Christ was obedient in his humility, you and I, brothers and sisters, have been given everything we need for life and godliness in order to pursue obedience without dying on when this is going to happen. I lack nothing simply because I lack details. But then Jesus moves on, and he shows another picture of what those days will be like. He doesn't say it's going to occur in this many years. He doesn't say it's going to occur at this specific time. He said there are specific signs that are going to be present. When these things happen, you will know that it's close. But now he ties it to another picture, an illustration, and it's of a different generation, specifically the days of Noah. Look at verse 37. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. There's a parallel that Jesus establishes. The times around Noah are going to be similar in some way to the times around the coming of the Son of Man. Well, what do we know about the times there of uh, the days of Noah? Well, if we read through Genesis 6, we could read about the utter moral failure of people. Genesis 6, 5 says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You say, well, that sounds familiar. We must be ready. But here's the reality. Jesus is not making the connection to the wickedness of the days of Noah. The parallel that he draws is much more pointed. He says, for as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. It isn't the wickedness of the day that Jesus points to as the parallel. It's the ignorance. It's the hardness of heart that blinded them to the reality of what was about to come. Look at what they were doing. They were eating and drinking, something that people do every day. But eating and drinking has this kind of idea of festive merriment, the partying, as it were. Not only that, they were marrying and giving in marriage. That's, again, something that's common. But you marry and you give in marriage with the intent that it lasts for a while. Even in our culture, marriage is assumed to last for at least a while. These people were living their lives as if what happened yesterday was going to happen today and would continue to happen tomorrow and the next day and the next. The implication is that the days were short and that judgment was coming, and if they understood that the end of the world that they knew was right at the door, their lives would have looked different. No one throws a dinner party when they think they're going to die that night. But their lives were lived as though what happened in the past would just carry on into the future without any change. And Jesus says, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. When Christ returns, it will be very much the same. People will be swept away in judgment that they were absolutely unprepared for. But what's the point? What's the point of that picture? Ultimately, we know that this is calling us to be on guard and awake. That is going to be absolutely clear in the coming verses, to be ready. But why does Jesus use Noah and the days that he lived in? Well, for one thing, I think it's an absolutely unique comparison. We're talking about God's judgment on all of humanity, and that has not happened save one other time in human history. Sin has been present since the garden. Murder, lust, adultery, envy, all of the sins that characterize 
us have characterized every age. But only one other time has God executed universal worldwide judgment for sin, and that is at the flood. And at another point in history, he is going to do it again at his second coming. No one escaped the flood. It impacted every person on earth. No one escapes the second coming. We've seen that in the context of Matthew 24. It is this universal coming judgment that is absolutely recognized and that no one escapes from. So the flood uh, provides this unique parallel that Jesus draws from when it comes to judgment. But I think there's another really helpful reason. Because lots of people question, how can this be? Uh, They say there is a disconnect here that we can't get around. That how can the things be clear? How can the signs be plain that talk about his coming and yet people be unaware? And that has led some people to say, well, you can't have both. So either these signs are separated from his actual coming by a lot of years or that these signs aren't the physical, clear, literal things that you would say that they were. I think that the parallel to the generation before the flood answers that question perfectly. Because here's the reality. Sin blinds people to what ought to be clear. People crave darkness, and they pursue rebellion as a natural heart response. How do we know? What have we seen in Matthew's gospel? What do the scribes and the Pharisees come to Jesus and ask for? Give us a sign. Prove to us that you are who, they are, you, are who you say you are. Did they lack information? Did they not have enough data points to decide who Jesus was? No, it had been made absolutely clear who he was every time he taught, every time he healed, every time he responded to them. Every time he did exactly what the prophet said the Messiah would do, it was absolutely clear that Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be. They did not need another sign. They didn't need another proof. The problem was not access to information. The problem was hardness of heart. The people who perished in the flood in the days of Noah did not do it out of ignorance. The flood didn't come without warning. For one thing, you have the ark itself. Noah is building a landmark-sized project in the backyard in a place that doesn't make sense. We know homeowners associations that complain the grass is a little bit too big. This thing is a massive structure, and people knew. And God did not beam Noah an ark. He said, this is how you will build it. And for over 100 years, Noah worked. And for over a hundred years, God delayed his judgment. At some point this week, read 2 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to turn there now. You don't have to because of time. At some point this week, read 2 Peter chapter 3 as a parallel to Matthew 24 and notice the overlapping and parallel themes there. In the last days, Peter says, mockers are going to come with their mocking, saying that the promise of God must not be true because everything is carrying on exactly as it always has. Verse 5 says they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago. The earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of the word that then existed, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. They assume that judgment could not come and it came There's a generation coming that will assume that judgment cannot come, and it will. 
So why the delay? You read through 2 Peter 3, and it's because God is not forgetful. He's patient, not willing that any of his people should perish. He's not going to lose one on account of rushing things. It should sound very familiar, as Christ doesn't lose one of the elect in Matthew 24. The reality is that judgment is coming just like it did in the days of Noah. For right now, judgment is delayed just like it was in the days of Noah. And if you were to go back to 2 Peter chapter 2, just one chapter earlier, he calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. Noah didn't just build a boat. Noah preached. For over a hundred years, the people had a physical sign that something was coming, and people had a verbal warning that judgment was on its way. And yet they were swept away, as it were, ignorant and unknowing, not because they didn't have access to the information, but because they closed themselves off to the truth that was plainly presented to them. And that's why I think if we go back to Matthew 24, that is such a clear and perfect parallel to what is going to happen. How can you miss these kinds of signs? How can you say there are going to be signs on the earth and in the heavens, and yet people are going to be caught unaware because sin blinds to truth? The same way that Jesus was both revealed clearly and widely rejected. Every proof that he was exactly who the prophets promised he would be, but a people who were hard-hearted and blind same reason that the flood was both known and unknown. Willful rebellion and the same reason that people will continue to be blinded to the warnings that are given to them. All right, we'll wrap it up for today. Got to think about asking and answering questions because sometimes we can ask really good questions and then completely miss when it comes to responding to the answers. Sometimes I understand that something is bothering my wife. And a good question is, honey, what's going on? What's bothering you? And about 10 seconds into her answer, I stop listening and I go into fix-it mode. And then I say, well, if you would only do these 10 things that my wisdom has laid out for you, you would no longer be bothered in the way that you are. That's the right question with the wrong response. The disciples hear all of this and they say, what is the sign of your coming? When is the end of the age? That is a good question. And Jesus says, it is coming, it is delayed, be ready. And they miss it. How do we know? Because in the coming chapters, instead of being prepared for his coming, they fall asleep when they should be praying. And instead of marveling at the greatness of the king, they argue about which one of them is the greatest in the kingdom. Instead of acknowledging that he is going to overcome and defeat all of his enemies, they deny him when they're confronted. See, this can be a difficult section, but the main points are clear. We can have good discussions. We can ask good questions. But our response to this has to be more than a theological pointing out of why our view of eschatology is the right one. We've got to be people who live in light of these things. So three things, very quickly, that bring us in that way today. First of all, we can be a people that live with absolute certainty in an uncertain world. Financial projections paid. Politicians lie. I try my best, but I can't seem to behave myself for any amount of consistent time. <laughs> Everything seems like it's up in the air. How comforting, how encouraging, how strengthening is it to know that God and his word do not change? 
that earthly powers come and go, but that God remains. Cultures change. Fads rise and fall. God's word doesn't have to adjust to the changing times. The heavens and the earth are going to be shaken to their very core, but God's word stands forever. That same God has said that he will provide for his people. He's the same God that said he's coming again. It's the same God that says that there is a way to be reconciled to him through faith in Jesus Christ. And because we can live with certainty, we can live with expectation. We can be a people who live in great wholehearted expectation. The fact that he is coming again is good news for his people. We can expect that one day our joy will be made complete. We can expect that he will complete the good work that he started in us. We can expect that although this world can be unfair, unjust, painful, that when he comes and when we are restored and when we are made like him, that all of this will be like a momentary light affliction that was simply preparing us for this eternal weight of glory. We can expect that those things are true, but it's not just good for the someday out there. The fact that he is always true to his word means that we can expect real change and real things to happen in our life right now. Oftentimes we are a people who come and experience theological reality, but don't actually expect any real change in our lives. Why? Is the same God who said he is coming again not the same God who said that if you live in obedience and faith and humility that I will give you a peace that passes all understanding? From my perspective, it seems to be. The same God is the one that said he would provide for our every need. The same God that said through the power of the Spirit you can experience real change because you're no longer a slave to sin. Sometimes we're people that acknowledge truth but don't live in any expectation that it makes a difference in our lives. And finally, we are a people who can live and should live with tremendous urgency. Here's the sad reality of the church is we tend to swing between two extremes, either apathy or absolute angst. Either none of this matters or everything is the end of the world. We are a people who can live with this settled, content urgency who understand that because the king is coming again, lives matter right now. That because we don't know the day or the hour, not just of his coming, but of the end of our lives, that these things matter right now. And yet we put off things of eternal importance because we're tired or the kids have a game or work got busy. And I'm not saying that those things don't matter. Of course they do. They're part of our lives. But how often do we shove off and put off what has eternal significance for what just has earthly fleeting importance? And on the other side of that, how often do we get so very riled up about things that will not endure forever? You realize that our hope is not determined by the outcome of the next election, the next law passed, the next bad choice that we make, the next difficulty that we walk through, the next diagnosis that we endure. See, this matters because we have a way to live urgently, hopefully, and expectantly in a way that the world can't understand. Let's pray. Lord, as we think about the end, I pray that it matters to us, not because we are panicked and not because we are rooting for the destruction of this world, but because it reminds us to live in urgency. Lord, we live in the eager expectation that you will continue to call people to yourself and that you have called us to come into that great work of proclaiming the kingdom. 
Lord, we understand that this world is marred by sin and that that means that life will be hard for any number of reasons. And in the middle of our pain and our suffering, in the middle of our sorrow, in the middle of our inadequacy, you are enough, you are good, and you will do exactly what you have promised to do. Lord, ground our minds in the unmistakable truths of unchanging Scripture. Remind us of who you are, because in knowing who you are, we find who we are. May our identity be settled and grounded in Christ. We pray, Lord, come quickly. Amen.